Who in here has seen The Shawshank Redemption? Anybody? It's a great movie. If you haven't seen it, you should. Spoiler alert. I'll tell you a little bit about the movie right now. It's really about two guys. Two guys. Andy Dufresne, played by Tim Robbins, and Red, Morgan Freeman. And these guys are friends, and they're both in the Shawshank prison. And Andy has been in prison wrongly, and he's in there for life. There's no hope of him getting out. And Red could be up for parole at some time. They're both, uh, he's a convicted criminal, and, and they're talking one day. And Andy tells Red, he says, hey, you know, if you ever get out of here, if you ever make it out of here, if you get on parole or whatever, I, I want you to go to this place. And he describes this field. And at the end of the field, there's this big tree. And he says, underneath this tree, you'll find something buried there. And he tells him this. this, And, and, and then Andy, if you haven't seen it, sorry, spoiler alert, he breaks out. <laughs> breaks out of prison. A, a pretty cool breakout. Um, he breaks out and he heads out. And Red goes. And tr- when he finally gets parole years later, he tracks down this field. And he tracks down the tree, finds it, and then he ba- digs underneath this tree and finds this tin case that Andy had buried for him. And Red picks, picks it up and opens up, and inside is a letter that Andy had written to his friend Red. And in it he says these words. He says that hope is a good thing, maybe the best of things, and no good thing ever dies. And he had told Red about this favorite place of his that he was thinking about, this small fishing village on the coast of Mexico. And in there was some money so that Red could get down to this fishing village in Mexico, a paradise. And then Red, in the very next scene, has to make a decision. He has to make a decision. Will he stay where he is on parole, continue working this very low-paying job all alone, or will he go down to Mexico to find his friend Andy? And he says, you either have to get busy living or get busy dying. And that's a choice we all have to make. Because what he was talking about was that hope. If hope is the best of things, we have to decide, will I live in hope with an expectation of a better future? Or will I succumb to the despair of life and die? Get busy living or get busy dying? And that's the question that will confront a woman today in our story. And I hope that you will be confronted with that question, too, because she had to learn to see the unseen, as we're talking about in our series, to see something that no one else could see, that she couldn't even see, but had to develop this mindset of seeing the unseen. And I hope that we will do the same today when it comes to hope, when it comes to hope. So we're now in our story in 2 Kings chapter 4. If you want to follow along, we're starting in verse 8 today. And this story is about a woman. Now, she's unnamed in this story, and I have a theory about why she's unnamed, but she's often called the Shunammite woman because she's from the town of Shunam, the Shunammite woman. And it says that this woman was well-to-do. She was very wealthy. She and her husband had a lot of money, probably a lot of land. They did very well. And she was also a very generous woman. And I, that's my personal theory. I have no evidence to back this up, but I think she wanted to remain anonymous. Just like she's an anonymous donor, she's described as this very wealthy woman. And what she would do is she met Elisha, this prophet, this man of God, this minister. And she said, hey, I want you to come over to my house and have a meal. So whenever he'd be passing through Shunem, she'd come over to his house and he'd get a great meal. And then she said, talking to her husband, you know, it's not just enough to give a meal to Elisha. Let's, let's put him up. Let's put him up for the night. And that wasn't enough. And she said, you know what we need to do? We need to add on to our house. We need an addition just for Elisha. 
That's what it says. They built a room on her roof, meaning they put a second story addition to this house. And they built it. They furnished it really nicely. And they put up Elisha any time he came through town. He could stay in this second story room, all his own. She was very generous. And this is, you know, kind of a side point, a bonus point, as I call it, from this story. But um, I think it's amazing when people are generous and hospitable. With those people that are opening up their homes and their apartments or whatever for community groups, thank you so much for that. For those of you that donate, that you are very generous with your money to help support our church, I understand it because Elisha was reliant on a woman like this for generosity, and I'm reliant on all of you, and our church is too. So thank you for giving. That's a bonus point. It's a bonus point. So this woman is very generous, very kind, very hospitable. She's welcoming Elisha every time he's coming through town in his ministry because he goes around the nation of Israel telling people about God, prophesying, speaking to kings, doing all sorts of stuff. And one day Elisha is staying in his room, this nicely furnished room on the second floor, and and he talks to his friend and servant, a a guy named Gehazi. And we're not told a lot. He's going to show up actually in a few more stories. But Gehazi was probably like Elisha was to Elijah. And Elisha was Elijah's servant, learned from him, um, studied under him for years, and then eventually took the mantle as the next prophet. So Gehazi is this servant friend of Elisha. And Elisha says, Gehazi, what can we do to say thank you to this woman? I want to do something nice for her after all the nice things she's done for us. So they call her in and they say, hey, what can we do for you? Elijah, Elisha says, hey, I know kings. I know the leaders of the nation. You need something? I can get it done for you. And she says, you know, I I have everything I need. I have money and I have a great big family. So in case something happened to my husband and I, we still have a family to fall back on. We have everything we need. You don't need to give us anything. We don't need we don't need anything. Thank you so much, though, for offering. So then she leaves and Elisha's still like, well, I just really want to do something for her. I really want to help out this woman. Say thank you. So Gehazi says to her or says to Elisha, you know, I've noticed that. She's getting older, and her husband's getting older, and they have no son. They don't have a child. Now, a son in those days would be very important because they could carry on the family name. This would be very very important to them, especially because they probably had a fortune. They had a lot of land, had a lot of money. They didn't have anyone to pass their family inheritance on to. Plus, she probably wanted a son. I mean, that, that was probably something that she'd been missing all these years. So Elisha then calls her back into his room and says... Shunammite woman, whatever her name is, you know, right? He says, hey, verse 16, we pick it up. He says, about this time next year, Elisha said, you will hold a son in your arms. And she says, oh, thank you, that's amazing, that's the thing, gift I've been longing for for so long. No, what does she say? No, my Lord, she objected. Please, man of God, don't mislead your servant. Why wasn't she happy? It it would be so great to have a son. But she said, don't mislead me. Because probably for this woman, it had been years, maybe even decades, that she had wanted a son. And nothing had happened. She'd gone through infertility, maybe uh, even miscarriages. She had suffered and struggled through all of that for years, and she had come to the point where she said, I don't even want to hope for a child. She said, it's easier just to think it's never going to happen. It's easier just to say that. I don't want you to get my expectations up, Elisha, because it hurts so much. She was afraid to hope. Now, 
I kind of know a little bit about what she was feeling because Melissa and I um, tried for five years to get pregnant before we had McKinley. And for five years, you know, at first we were just like, okay, it's not working after six months. Well, you know, this happens to a lot of people. After a year, we're thinking, okay, something's not right. Something's not right. And it was difficult because everybody else was getting pregnant. And they were saying, hey, you know what you should do? You should try this. Drink this juice. It's like, juice is going to do it. (laughs) But we tried the juice, right? That's what you do. But it was so hard because with infertility, it's not just one no. It's a no every single month. Again and again and again. And just when you get your hopes up, maybe it's this time, your expectations, your hopes are dashed again. And this happened to this woman maybe months and months. And I just remember during that time when Melissa and I were struggling with that, just crying out to God, why? You know, we'd be angry with God. Why is this happening to us? Why? You know, why? We, we see all these other people having three kids in the same time. We had none. What's going on? And this Shunammite woman had been dealing with that for a very long time. Her hopes had been dashed to the point where she said, I don't want to hope anymore. Don't get my expectations up. Don't do it. But what happens? Well, a few months later, she gets pregnant. And about a year after Elisha had given her this prophecy, she has a son. This prophecy that Elisha gave had, had come true. This longing that she'd probably had for years and squished down now had come to fruition and she had a son. I'm sure she loved this son and, and probably loved changing diapers. That's what you do when you've been waiting for a long time. I can tell you that much. You don't mind the stink. Because she loved this child. She had wanted a child like this and, and this son she loved. But then a few years later, the son was out in the field with his father during harvest time. And out of nowhere, the son cries out, My head! My head! He had this excruciating pain. We're not told what it was. But whatever it was, the father said uh, to one of his servants, he said, Grab the boy and bring him back to his mother. He needs a mother's touch. And, And she takes the boy at home and she puts him on her lap, holds him through his pain. I could just imagine her stroking his hair, holding him until he dies. I can only imagine how difficult this would be for anyone, but for her in particular. No parent should have to bury a child. Some of you in here have had to deal with that. And this is a tragic loss. This makes no sense. And she'd been waiting so long, and then her hopes had gotten up because she had this child, she got pregnant and had the kid, and now everything is taken away. And she had that to make that decision. Get busy living or get busy dying. Will she choose the despair that I think most of us would want to in that situation? We've been there. We feel hopeless. There's no hope. But that's not what she does. She takes the boy. She carries him upstairs into Elisha's room and lays him on the bed and then shuts the door. Now, I think this is significant because she's not rending her clothes and mourning. She's not putting on sackcloth and ashes like you were supposed to do if you were in mourning. She lays him down as if he's going to take a nap in Elisha's room. And then she calls out to her husband and says, Hey, I need to go see Elisha, so get one of your servants to saddle up the donkey and get ready because I'm going to find Elisha, the man of God. And her husband's like, You can't do that. We're in the middle of harvest. I need all my workers. I, you can't, I can't 
do that. Can't, can't you wait until the Sabbath, till, till a day off? Can't you wait till a holiday? She says, no. No. Get your servant and make him saddle up the donkey. So that's what they do. And she tells the servant, I, I don't care what happens, what's going on, we're making a beeline for Elisha. We're going straight, we're not stopping, we're not taking any breaks, we're going to find Elisha. And they do that. Her eyes are set on finding Elisha. She's not mourning. She's not grieving. She rides the donkey some 20 miles to Mount Carmel. And as they're coming up to the distance, Elisha and Gehazi can see her in the distance. They, they recognize her and they can tell something's wrong. So Elisha says, Gehazi, go, go run out to her. Figure out what's going on with this woman. So he runs out to her and he says, what, what, what's going on? Is there something wrong with you? She doesn't respond. Is there something wrong with your husband? She doesn't say anything. Something wrong with your child? Hathi asks. Still, she just says, everything is fine. Everything's okay. Shalom in Hebrew. It's fine. And then, as she gets closer to Elisha, she jumps off her donkey. And then it says he, she falls at his feet, bowing in a, in a form of honor, petitioning him. Gehazi tries to grab her and take her away, but Elisha says, no, 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 I can tell. She's in grief. Something's going on. She's distraught. And he says, I, I don't know what's going on. Tell me. And she says this. Did I ask you for a son, my Lord? She said, didn't I tell you, don't raise my hopes? Can you feel the anger in her voice? She's making an accusation against him. Why did you put me through all this? Why? I didn't. I was fine the way things were. And then you give me this son, and then now my son is dead. But it's not just an accusation, because she has come at the feet of Elisha. She is petitioning him for something. She might be angry. She might be saying, you better do something. But she is asking him to act. So Elisha says, okay, Gehazi, you take my staff. Take my staff, and I want you to run as fast as you can. Don't stop for anyone. Run those 20 miles, and when you get there, don't talk to anyone. Just go up straight to the room and put that staff on the boy's face. So that's what Gehazi does. But the woman doesn't say, oh, great, everything's fine. No, she says, no, no, no. I'm staying with you, Elisha. I'm staying with you. I'm not leaving you. So he says, oh, okay. And then they start their journey walking those 20 miles back to her house in Shunem. Well, Gehazi gets to the house. He runs upstairs. He takes his staff and puts it on the boy's face. And nothing happens. The boy doesn't stir. He doesn't make a sound. He's not breathing. He's dead. Now, not only the woman has confirmed this, but now Gehazi has seen this. Probably a day or two later, this boy is dead. So Gehazi runs back to try to find Elisha and the Shunammite woman on the road. He gets to them and says, it didn't work. It didn't work. So Elisha says, okay, we've got to go. And they keep moving forward. They keep on that journey, those 20 miles back to Shunem. And then he goes up to, to have, try his hand at it. Goes upstairs, shuts the door, and begins to pray. I think he's praying because he didn't know what to do. And then maybe he remembered Elijah went through something similar. Do you remember this in 1 Kings 17? You can look up that story later if you don't remember. But Elijah raised a dead boy back to life. 
So Elisha probably had heard about this, and he says, okay, what did Elijah do? Elijah did something kind of weird. He laid out on top of the boy. So Elisha says, okay, that's what I'm going to try to do. So he gets on the bed, and he lays on top of the boy, and it says that he put palm to palm, mouth to mouth, face to face. Kind of strange, right? It's supposed to be weird. And he feels that the boy's getting a little warmer, maybe because he's just on top of him, but nothing happens. The boy doesn't move, he doesn't breathe, the boy's dead. So Elisha gets up and starts pacing back and forth. He doesn't know what to do. He's pacing. And I can just imagine, this is the second floor of this small house. I don't know, maybe it was a big house, but I can just imagine the Shunammite woman is sitting downstairs hearing these footsteps back and forth on her ceiling. She can hear every movement and she's probably thinking, what is Elisha doing? This is the man of God. What's going on? And she just had to wait. So then Elisha, after pacing back and forth, gets on the boy a second time. Palm to palm, face to face, mouth to mouth. And the boy starts getting warmer. Then something happens. He sneezes. The boy sneezes. He doesn't just sneeze once. It says he sneezed seven times. Now, if you're thinking that's weird, yes, it is. Now, I think these details in the story are so important because now Elisha has failed by sending his staff. He's failed once by praying. He's failed once by lying on top of this, this boy. And now he's pacing back and forth. And finally, the second time, something happens and he's sneezing to life. And I point that out because some people think, oh, these stories are made up. Nobody would make that up. These are bizarre details. I'll just say that. Nobody would make this up. This boy is sneezing awake seven times. So then Elisha calls to the woman. She comes up, falls at Elisha's feet, bowing in honor and respect. Elisha says, take your son. And she does. She picks him up, walks out. What I love about this story and what I love about this Shunammite woman and I wish I could know her name. Maybe someday we'll get to meet her. Is that for so long, she didn't want to hope. She was afraid to hope. It was so hard, she didn't even want to get her expectations up. No, 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 don't even try to raise my expectations. Then she was mad at Elisha for getting her hopes up, right? You got my hopes up and now they were dashed because my son died. I, I didn't want to hope. But, what was it that got this woman to not tear her clothes in mourning, but instead to put her son up for a nap almost. What was it that got this woman to not take no from, for an answer from her husband, to saddle the donkey, go 20 miles as fast as she could, run to Elisha, even though Gehazi was trying to rip her out of the way? What got her to say, I'm staying with you, Elisha. I'm not going anywhere. What got her to do all of that? Hope. She didn't want to hope. But it was the hope that drove her through that whole time to persevere, to keep at it, to not say, my son is dead, I'm giving up. No, no, no. It, she had hope that entire time. This is the most amazing thing that I think she learned and I hope you will as well. Sometimes it's hard to hope. But it's hope that gets you through the hardest times. Sometimes it's the hardest thing to do to hope. You just don't even want to think anything could get better. You want to despair. You want to lay on your bed. You want to be depressed and stay there. Sometimes it's hard to hope, but it's hope that gets you through the hardest times. You need hope to get up, to keep moving, to try, to persevere, to make it through that. You need hope to get through. 
Parker Palmer, in one of his books, um, tells about some of the blizzards that take place in the Midwest. And I lived in Nebraska up until this last year, and I saw some like this, maybe not quite as bad, but they get even worse as you go farther north, right side, up into South Dakota, North Dakota, up into Canada. Some of these blizzards are terrible. And when the blizzards come, there's so much wind. There's a lot of wind. There's so much wind that you can't see anything. It's whiteout conditions. But farmers still have to feed their animals. So what farmers had to learn to do was to tie a rope from the back of their house to the barn. And when they would go out to feed their animals or to milk the cows, they would have to hold on to the rope because the wind was blowing so bad they couldn't see anything because there are lots of stories of farmers getting lost in their own backyards and freezing to death. They need a rope to hold on to. Well, I'm here to tell you that hope is the rope we need to cling to. It's what we need to hold on to to get us through the storms, to get us through the crazy stuff that happens in life, the suffering, the loss, the tragedy. We need hope. Even when it's hard. It's hard to hold on to that rope. We need it. And this is the thing I think this woman learned, and I hope that you do as well, that you don't have hope. You have to develop hope. Ed Welch, a, a pastor, I'm sorry, not a pastor, but a counselor and author, he writes this about hope. He says, hope, as you will find, is a skill that takes practice. There is no verse, pill, or possession that will make it magically appear. Hope is a skill that develops over time. It's a thing, because you may say, well, Matt, I don't have any hope right now. I don't think things could get better. Maybe you're watching right now and, and you couldn't even get out of bed. It's so hard to have hope sometimes. But we've got to develop that skill. We've got to work at it like this woman did. She had to persevere. She had to work hard. She didn't even want to hope, but she did. And that's what got her through, clinging to that rope. In Romans chapter 5, Paul says, We rejoice in sufferings. All that hard stuff that happens, those tragedy, those terrible things... Knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance, character, and character, hope. And hope does not disappoint. We've got to work hard. We've got to make it through suffering. We've got to persevere. We've got to get up the next day. And then that develops this character inside of you, and you realize this hope has now been born in you because it's a skill you've developed over time. And hope does not disappoint. Hope does not disappoint. You know, um, has anyone seen the movie Unbroken? Uh, I read the book, and the book's better than the movie. Sorry to say. It happens sometimes. But it's a book by Laura Hillenbrand, and it tells the story of Louis Zamperini. And Louis Zamperini was a world-class athlete. He was an Olympic runner. But when World War II happened, he got drafted, and he was in the Army Air Force um, in, in a bomber stationed in the Pacific. Well, one day his bomber crashed into the Pacific Ocean, and of the 11-man crew, only three survived the crash. It was Louis, it was his friend Phillips, they called Phil, and Francis McNamara, who they called Mac. So Louis, Phil, and Mac were um, floating in the ocean. They had two rafts that they tied together, and they had a limited supply of rations, and they were just waiting to be rescued in the ocean. But from almost the moment they crashed down, Mac began to cry out as loud as he could, We're going to die, we're going to die, we're going to die until Louis smacked him upside the head. Seriously. And then he was just quiet. He just laid there with this stony, glazed look on his face. They had a, a couple bars of chocolate, and that was their, basically their ration. So they were going to ration them out um, over days, and hopefully they could wait for someone to rescue them. 
And they woke up the next morning and found out that Mac had eaten all the chocolate. Eaten everything. And they were mad at him, but they were trying not to say anything because they know they were all desperate. Mac lay there still, just staring off into the distance. Well, then the sun began to bake them. As it did, there was no shade. There was nothing to protect them. And they began to blister all over their body. Their lips swelled up and were chapped. They had sores all over their body. Nothing to protect them from the sun. And they continued to float there day after day, waiting for someone to help. Well, one day, um, they heard a plane in the distance. So they shot off flares. And it happened that the plane was a Japanese bomber. So the bomber came by and started to strafe them with bullets. And every time the bullets came, Louis had to jump out of the raft in order to not get shot. And what happened there in the water? There's a whole bunch of sharks waiting for him. He said the small ones were about six feet long and some twice that size. So he would jump off the raft and as soon as the plane was clear, he'd jump back in and, and do it again and again and again. And after the bomber finally left them for dead, they realized that one of the rafts was completely destroyed and the other one had a whole bunch of holes in it. So all three of them were on this two-man raft and they were furiously trying to uh, patch up all the holes as the sharks were now diving at them to eat them. And they had to whack them with paddles. Finally, they beat off the sharks, they got the raft repaired, and they're still lying there. Now they've run out of food. And then a few days later, they run out of water. They have nothing left, day after day, week after week, waiting to be rescued. But there is one thing that they did during this whole time. Well, two of them did, Louis and Phil they would begin to just talk and tell each other every story they could think of. At first, Mac told a couple stories, but then he just was quiet, was silent, wouldn't say anything, just moaned and mumbled for day after day, week after week. But they kept telling stories, asking each other questions. Louis would uh, remember his mother's great cooking. She was an Italian woman, and she made the best marinara. So he would describe in detail cutting up each onion and cutting the tomatoes and throwing them in the sauce and just the smell. And as soon as he finished telling the recipe, Mac would, uh, I'm sorry, Phil would say, tell it again, tell it again. And they would tell these stories over and over again. But Mac was silent the whole time. And then they began to talk about what they would do once they got back home. They would just imagine, oh, that girl that they had left behind. They would uh, just imagine running in and hugging their family. But Mac was silent. Just stared off into the distance. After 33 days, Mac died. He had given up. He had eaten more and drank more than the other two. But yet he died. The other two survived another 14 days, 47 days at sea, before they were picked up by the Japanese. And then they were thrown into a prisoner of war camp and mistreated and abused for a few more years. But both those men survived. Now, if you look at just those three men, why did two of them make it and the other one gave up and died? Well, he refused to talk and think about the future. He had given up. The only thing he ever said was, we're going to die. But not the other two. They talked about the future, dreamed of these things that looked impossible. They couldn't see any chance of hope after 40-something days. But they kept hoping. See, hope is a skill you have to develop. You have to work at it. You have to try in those times. You've got to say, well, what could it be? You've got to talk about it. You've got to think about it. Because sometimes it's hard to hope. But it's hope that gets you through those hardest times. And here's the thing, for us Christians, we have a living hope. A living hope. That's what Peter called it in 1 Peter 1.3. He said, God gave us a living hope because Jesus Christ rose from death. Gave us a living hope. 
And when Peter wrote this, it was a pretty terrible time. Later in that first, first Peter letter, he says that you guys are going through a fiery ordeal. Things were very bad for them. Literally, there may have been fires where Christians were burned at the stake. Christians were persecuted and killed. It was dangerous and illegal for them to believe. And yet he says we have a living hope. Because our hope isn't in some prophet or some man of God. It's in the man of God. The Son of God, Jesus, who came and he was the greatest prophet to ever live. He spoke with an authority that no one had ever seen before. And he ministered to people. And he even raised some people from the dead. A young boy and he he raised a young girl. He raised Lazarus, his friend, from the dead. But our hope isn't just in that man of God. It's also in the son who would die. Because Jesus was the one and only son of God. And he came and he didn't die from physical ailments. He was brutally murdered. Executed for crimes he did not commit. And when Jesus lay there sprawled out on the cross, he died for us. And like the boy in our story, Jesus didn't stay dead. Now, I I tell you things when I'm very sure about things, and and here's this one thing I'm not too sure about, but I I think it's important, so I want to tell you anyways. Because it's really interesting in our story that it tells us some details about the towns and about the time of day. It says that the boy, when he died, died about noon in Shunem. Now, the woman would have had to take him upstairs and would have had to talk get her husband back from the field, talk to him and get the servant, probably had an argument or fight, and then they had to get the donkey saddled up and and all the bags that they needed, whatever, the supplies, and then they would have had to make that trek of 20 miles into the hill country west into Mount Carmel. Now, I've tried to figure it out, but I don't think she would have made it there that first day. I just don't see how the timeline lines up. I think it would have been at least till the second day because... When she appeared, Elisha and Gehazi could make her out in the distance. So it must have been daylight. So it was at least on the second day when they got there. And then they had to talk, and Gehazi ran back, but Elisha and the Shunammite woman walked back. They were going slowly, those 20 miles again. And Gehazi had time to run all the way there and run back to them. So I don't think they would have made it there on the second day either. See, I can't be sure about this. Like I said, but I'm pretty sure that they made it there at least on the third day. And I find that so coincidental. (laughs) There is a such thing because there was the son Jesus who was dead on Friday. Put in the ground. Confirmed dead. Centurions were, were guarding the tomb where he was buried. And on the second day, on Saturday, nothing happened. But on the third day, the tomb was empty. The son had risen back from the dead. That's why we have a living hope. That's why we have a living hope. Because Jesus stayed alive. This boy would have eventually died, right? Maybe of old age, maybe years later. But Jesus didn't die. He appeared to over 500 people over a span of 40 days. He ate with them, talked with them, hugged them. They got to feel the wounds where he had been stabbed. And then Jesus ascended into heaven where he is still in that living, breathing body. And the promise that we have as Christians is that one day, when we believe in Jesus Christ, our bodies will be restored as well, and we will have a new body just like Jesus's. We have a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. That's the hope we cling to. That's the rope that we have to hold on to in the blizzard. That's the skill we have to practice is believing and keeping our eyes on Jesus. In 2 Corinthians um, chapter 4, we read that for our light, momentary light affliction 
is producing for us an absolutely incomparable eternal weight of glory. So we do not focus on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but what is unseen is eternal. Do you notice this is where I got the title from our series for? From? See, as Christians, we have a living hope and we see something that no one else can see. We see the unseen. We see that no matter how bad things get, no matter the infertility, no matter the death, no matter the struggle we have right now, even if we don't want to get out of bed, we know that we have a hope. And as bad as things get in this life, even if our bodies break down and our loved ones die and we die, we know that we have a living hope beyond the grave. And our momentary light affliction, that's what it calls us, is not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed. So let's see the unseen together. Let's focus on our hope, because sometimes it is hard to hope, but it's hope that gets you through the hardest times. Let's pray. God, I need hope. I know there's people in here who need hope, and I want to pray especially for them. For the person right now who's struggling this week, maybe listening to this right now, and they don't want to go on living. Lord, I pray that you would just stir something in their soul. That you would bring them hope into their life. That they would see that it's time to choose to get busy living, not dying. I pray, Lord God, that we'd be able to hold fast. Those people who are struggling right now with a death or with a struggle or something going on in their marriage, whatever it is, Lord God, would you give them the strength to hold on to the rope, the hope that is your son, Jesus Christ, because he is alive and not dead. Lord, fill our souls with a living hope that everyone in here would be able to say, I'm developing that skill. I'm going to continue to hope no matter what happens. That I could be like that Shunammite woman and keep going forward and persevering no matter what happens. I pray, Lord God, that you'd help us see the unseen and realize that no matter what happens in this life, it's momentary, it's light, and the glory that will be revealed in us is even greater. It far outweighs them all. Lord, help us to hold on to hope to get through the hardest times. Amen.